0: But every now and then somebody would get killed, you know, and, uh, you know, I remember one dude, they gave him a shot of dope and, uh, you know, know, he slammed it. And when he slammed it, uh, dude, you know, ran a piece in his neck and I heard his head flopped over backwards, pretty brutal, you know.
1: Was it over a drug debt then?
0: Kind of, you know, he was, uh, yeah, I guess he owed some money to somebody, you know. And then uh, there was one, there was this little Pisic guy down on the first tier, and uh, this big dude my size, black dude, took his shit, you know? And he's like, hey, give my shit back, you know? And the guy's like, you know, fuck you. And So he went and got a piece, stabbed him, killed him, you know? I that's uh They had about, say, I was there about four and a half years. They had, I don't know, seven or eight murders, you know? So there wasn't a lot of violence there, but when there was violence, it was usually a, a killing, you know? Yeah, I spent uh, 38 years, six months, a couple weeks, and change.
1: <laughs> you, you served almost 40 years, didn't you?
0: Yeah, I spent uh, 38 years, six months, a couple weeks, and change. <laughs> Did you Just, hear
1: that? So Mitch spent almost 40 years in, I believe, the California State Prison System. Right. right. He has his own channel, Hard Intentions. The link will be in the description box below this video if you want to go and check out what he's doing over there and subscribe. He's got loads of stories. He's been on the damage done, I think it was, with those uh, young fellas, which was a good one, which I've been watching. Well, like I said, we are primarily interested in your story, Mitch. Almost 40 <laughs> decades in the California state prison system. Yeah. And uh, for the viewers here, Bruno was in the Arizona jail with me. He's, he's been co-hosting with the American interviews, and his links are down there as well for his interviews. So, Mitch... If you could...
0: uh, Bruno has a uh, YouTube channel as well, or...? No, yeah, he's,
1: been, he's done some interviews on my channel. All right. Yeah. So yeah. that
0: was Arizona. That was a federal prison? State. Oh state. All right.
1: Sheriff Joe Arpaio, have you heard of him?
0: Yeah, I have. (laughs) Pink underwear. (laughs) Mitch got a lot of of experience with pink underwear. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Mitch, how did your journey into the incarceration system begin?
0: Well, you know, it doesn't always start with your crime, you know. I mean it starts you know, way before that. I mean you know, I went to prison when I was 17 years old. So, um, I didn't just wake up at 17 and go, Hey, I'm going to go commit some crimes, go to prison. I mean, uh, you know, I grew up in a pretty shitty environment and, uh, uh, you know, basically I had a stepdad who was an alcoholic, a Korean war veteran and a roofer. And, you know, he was a pretty rough dude, kind of abusive, you know, alcoholic. So, uh, you know, I grew up in San Diego, California. Um, you know, when you have a shitty home life, you uh, look for like uh, family connections outside of the house. You know, and I I grew up in a town called Lakeside in San Diego, California. It's kind of rough and tumble. Uh, they have an Indian reservation there, and they have a they have a rodeo there still every year. And uh, you know, so it was like cowboys and Indians, and bikers. You know, and, and
1: uh,
0: I gravitated towards biker style. You know, people and You know, violence and crime and, you know, uh, substance abuse was kind of normal. So that led me up to, uh, you know, I went to Youth Authority a couple times. Um, I think I got to Youth Authority when I was 13. I did a couple years. I stayed out for about four months and I went back for a year, um, you know, for violence. Uh, And then I stayed out of Youth Authority about about a year and I got my life sentence. So. So could you tell me a little bit about the, uh, the youth authority and how the time was in there? I heard, uh, I heard that in the California system, the youth authority is probably harder than the County jails. Could you tell <laughs> us a little bit about your journey in there? Yeah, well, you know, youth authority to me was, uh, it wasn't as deadly, but it was more violent in prison. Cause you're, you know, you fight, them you know, all the time. Uh, 1974, it was kind of the end of the whole, you know, black power movement from the sixties and all that. And so a lot of the, and it was the beginning of the, you know, the black gangs we're all familiar with now the Crips and the Bloods and all that. They were just kind of starting to take off and, and, uh, you know you go to a unit i was I'm, i remember being on a unit uh well like you know four or five white guys and you know 35 40 blacks about 30 blacks 15 20 you know mexicans and and uh so it was like you know we we uh <laughs> it was rough we you know a lot of fighting a lot of getting rat packed and all that kind of shit so you know that and so the the violence that you grow up around on the street you know fighting tough guy shit whatever uh you know just carried on into youth authority you know and it was just like uh everyone's young and trying to prove their uh whatever you know trying to make their their self known for being uh you know tough or whatever i mean and then the guys is better, you know, I I hadn't had any experience with gangs really. You know, I mean I grew up around motorcycle clubs and all that stuff, but I never really considered that gang, gang stuff, you know. So that was my first uh exposure to gangs, uh, you know, uh Hispanic gangs, black gangs, you know. I was like, wow, that's kind of a it was a new experience. And it was uh <clears throat> you know, at first it's kind of uh, you know be lying to yourself, you say it's not frightening, you know, because you're a young kid and you're around guys that are in there. I'd never really been around guys that I knew that were uh, killing people. So I'm around guys that are my age, a little older, and and they're in there for murder and robberies and all kinds of shit that I'd never, you know, been exposed to really. Um, And I was a big kid, you know, I was tall. So I was on the unit with uh, older guys. So here I am. You know, 13 years old, and I'm in a unit with guys that are 17, 18, 19 years old, 20 years old, you know. So, yeah. It was.
1: What, uh, what was it like inside the layout? Was it dorms? Was it cells?
0: Yeah, it, was, it was dorm living. Uh, I was in, so I was in Mellis, Fred C. Mellis, it's in Whittier, California. And, uh, I had a, I had a, back then they give indeterminate sentences pretty much in authority in prison. And so I had a six months to nine month sentence. it was called a board referral and, uh, about six months in some dudes had broke into a little canteen on the unit and then blamed it on me. And they're like, yeah, we're going to give you six more months. And, you know, when you're young like that, that's a long time, you know, so, um, uh, a friend of mine and I decided we were going to escape. And so I had a, I got a rope. <clears throat> it's a dorm with, you know, big dorm, bathroom, day room, you know. And so uh, I had a chess board that they made in, uh, in the wood shop. It was about, I don't know, inch, inch and a half thick. And so we decided we're going to knock this nightman out and take his keys, you know, big, you know, escape plan. <laughs> and uh <clears throat> so the guy's walking, he walked down the center of the dorm and then back, you know. And so as he's walking back, I was getting out of bed to, you know, to to beat on him. And uh he goes, What are you doing? He was he was Iranian, you know, and he had an accent. He goes, What are you doing, smiley? you know, and I, I go, I'm just putting his chessboard away. Cause he got a bed and a locker and a bed and a locker, you know, and so And as soon as he turned around, you know, I beat him with a chessboard. Uh, I hit him about three good times, the chessboard broke. And I went to the locker to grab the rope, and I turned around, and he was in the office. You know, I didn't knock him out. So, but I remember looking in the office, and he had blood coming down, and he said, get smiley, get smiley, you know. So I hopped in bed, you know, and pretending like I'm sleeping of course here come the all the other staff and so I got uh I think they gave me like four extra years for that and uh later on they I I got busted with some contraband and when you get a one write-up you know disciplinary uh they give you more time so the disciplinary officer goes you know you've already picked up like four years you came in here with a six to nine month sentence and I don't want to give you any more time so they had to send me in front of the board the pro board you know because they were breaking the it's called the table of sanctions whatever they're breaking the standard you know on time so I I went in there and, and I thought it was kind of weird because they were asking me a bunch of questions about the streets and this and that and you know, and I stepped out and they came back in and they go, you know, you, you came in here, you've been here a couple of years. And, uh, <clears throat> they, they decided they were going to let me out. They go, we don't want you to become institutionalized. We're going to let you, we're going to release you. And, uh, I was like, wow. And they also decided to transfer me to another, another institution. So, uh, because it, and they were correct, you know, staff were pretty upset that I they were gonna let me out after I had assaulted the staff member and and so uh I went up north to OH Clothes, which is in Stockton and it's Northern California. And uh, you know, it didn't work out. Mm. Uh, you know, it was a pretty mellow place, but <clears throat> I had spent a couple of years in a pretty violent place, and and so now you know violence is the norm, you know. Uh and so I you know, I got in a couple fights there. Um I remember uh, you know, one, one guy they were saying was an informant and uh you know, caught him in the in the day room and smacked him in the head with you know, they had a pool table, so I beat him in the head with a pool a pool ball, you know, and it turned out the guy saying he was telling told on me. So uh, they took my release date for six months and sent me to a place called Paso Robos, who's in central California. And uh <clears throat> so now I'm like 15, something like that. And uh so I get there and, uh you know, now I'm just fucking, I'm mad because I lost my release date, you know, and I had a homeboy there, Ricky, Ricky Grace from San Diego and, uh, some guys were kind of campaigning against him. And, uh, you know, he had beat some guy up and it was their friend. Ricky was kind of wild. You know, he'd gone through the same places I'd gone through. And and so I was, I remember going through the chow line. And uh, one of the dudes I heard that was going to jump on my homeboy, I, I told him, man, if you fuck with my homeboy, I'm going to stab you. And uh, so now I've gone from, you know, I'm going to fight and learning how to fight getting rat-packed by, you know, black gangs and whatever, and you know, so now I'm like, you know, I'll stab you. I mean, that's it, you know, looking back, it's a progression, you know, it becomes, once the violence becomes normal, it just progresses, you know. So <clears throat> they came and got me a few days later and took me to the hole. They had a, the hole, that they had a program side and an ad-sig side, kind of. And I finished my last six months there. In the hole. And the day before I was released, uh, the Protestant chaplain came down and, and he goes, uh, I'm the one that had you put in here. And he goes, uh, some of the guys came to him and told him, you know, that I had threatened him. And <clears throat> he looked at my file and seen I had done all this time. And he goes, I didn't want you to get any more time. I wanted you to go home. And I knew if I had you put in here, you would go. But, I mean, I got a few fights in there too, you know, but. So I ended up getting released, uh, like 1976. Yeah. So, so how did that how did that work out for you? Uh, I know you know moving forward in the in the 80s and the 90s, you know, being from Southern California, moving you to Central California, Northern California, did the gangs, um, you know, bother you very much? Was it uh, was it, you know, did they have that hierarchy that set where this gang ran? <clears throat> This gang ran this. Could you tell us a little bit about that? You know, and, and there were really no white gangs, you know. You had guys walking around saying they were Nazis and tattooing white power on them and all that kind of shit. But um I mean it was no real organized gangs, you know. Um the only gangs like in Mellis were black gangs. I remember we used to uh there was uh there was a gang like mostly cribs, you know. And so the pyros back then, the bloods—they had their own unit. The whole place, all every unit was full of cribs, except this one unit. And uh, well, we had this one dude on my unit who was a pyro. And and I remember one day we were sitting there, like three white dudes. Here come like six or eight, you know, these cribs, and and you know they're with the stupid questions. And I'm I'm just thinking, ah, fuck, you know, here we go. <clears throat> and this Pyru guy uh who i ran into in prison later on he walked up he looks at us he looks at them and he goes uh you'll say man leave these white boys alone they ain't done nothing to you and they kind of looked at him stupid and he goes you heard what i said and they just walked away so i was i was kind of <laughs> i was kind of blown away by that you know but um well, you know, I, there there were white dudes in Nellis that I ran into in prison. You know, from Oilville, different parts of the state. <clears throat> they were pretty tough, you know. I mean, it bred a certain thing in you, you know. And and uh, but when I went to O.A.'s Close, I couldn't believe how mellow it was. It was totally different. There were no Crips, no Bloods. Uh, one of the Crips had gone there also that I was in Nellis with. Um, <laughs> there was no real gang activity. It was a pretty mellow place, you know? But, uh, Pastor Robos, you know, I didn't really experience the, uh, same thing, mostly black gangs, you know, like neighborhood, you know? But, uh, yeah, it was, it was definitely an eye opening experience as a young kid, you know I mean? To get thrown in that, um, you know, growing up, not being around that it was kind of an eye opener and uh plus like drugs for me was just like weed lsd drinking so now i'm running into guys since i got older they're into like heroin and i'm like oh, you know whatever <clears throat> but uh yeah you know so i i got out of there and and i was full of uh I was pretty full of anger, you know, really. And uh, you know, by then, you know, my mom and dad had separated, my stepdad and my mom. And uh <clears throat> I had met my this guy I thought was my dad, he was supposed to be my dad. That didn't work out. He lived in Montana. <clears throat> but uh Yeah, so here I am after doing a couple of year, two and a half years in youth authority, and I'm just like, you know. I felt like I had been fucked over, you know, by the state and also by, uh, you know, family, you know, having an asshole stepdad. And, you know, my whole thing was, you know, I got kicked out. of I went to school for a while. I went to continuation school, and I got kicked out of there. I think I, I body slammed the principal. They were kind of checking me, and they thought I was loaded. And uh, I body slammed them. They kicked me out, you know. So I'm hanging out, selling weed, uh, drinking, you know, and uh, got a motorcycle. And, uh, you know, it was all downhill from there. I got no. I remember um, a friend of mine and I were in this place. It was, uh, you know, because I was underage. So I had like like a pool hall kind of thing. And uh, we got in a fight with these two guys that were uh, a little older, like 19, 20, college guys. And uh, fucked them up pretty bad, over 25 fucking cents, you know? Uh, yeah, you play, a, you play a game of foosball and my partner goes, hey, let's go, you know, you match a quarter, we put in a quarter play game, you put in a quarter play game, you know, whatever. And it was 4th of July, I was been drinking and smoking weed all day. And, um, my friend goes, Hey, they didn't match our quarter. Let's go fuck them up. I'm like, you know, that's an excuse to fuck someone up, you know? So that got me arrested a few, about a week later, I got arrested and, uh, they sent me back to youth authority for a year. And, uh, but you know, while I was out, I had been several fights, you know, um, In that same pool hall, I had a friend that was a little older, a little skinny guy, homeboy of mine. Um, He had borrowed 50 bucks from some guys, uh, paid him back. They were biker dudes um, from a different area than I was associated with. And so they were like sweating him for some extra money. And the guy's a grown man, you know, he's probably late 20s. And uh, so he came back that night, like, to collect his cash from my homeboy. And I, <clears throat> I beat him down pretty bad. I had him on the concrete, smashing his head in the ground. And, um, you know, someone pulled me off and said, that's enough. And I remember him, you know, saying, yeah, when I get my head right, I'm going to come back with my brothers. And I told him, uh, well, you know, go tell your brothers you got your ass kicked by a 15-year-old kid. <laughs> you know. I mean, you know, you feel like you get a little prestige because you're tough and you can fight and all that bullshit, you know. So anyway, I went back to youth. I went to Preston, you know, and um, they call that the White House because it's in Northern California. It's in own California. It's outside of Sacramento, and my I actually had family that lived in the town that this place was. But uh, so I went there. Preston was a different ball game. Uh I remember guys had the White Power newspaper and you know, all the white guys were like, you know, and I went there I was sixteen and I was on a unit, supposedly I guess was like, you know, the 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 hard unit, you know. <clears throat> and uh there were guys from Northern California, guys from Southern California, I'm a big kid, and uh I'm young, but I've been through a lot of shit already, so um, some of the guys are saying, oh, he should go up on the hill, which is dorm living, easier environment. And the other guys are like, well, you know, uh, they didn't want me to leave. So they have a thing, you know, like you go chest, you know, like it's like fighting but you see each other in the chest. And They go, hey, you know how to go chest? They're fucking with me. Like, get me. Like, ask me stupid questions and like grilling you, you know? <clears throat> and, uh, so I'm getting a little upset. And so they had me go chess with this guy they called Elvis. Cause he played a guitar and shit. And he was kind of yoked up. And I remember, um, I put welts all over his chest and, uh, I accidentally hit him in the mouth a couple of times. And, uh, I remember this guy, Louie from San Fernando Valley, come up, put his arm around me and goes, so you guys still want him to leave? <laughs> and, uh, So that settled that, you know, but, you know, I'm around guys that are older. They're getting letters from San Quentin from guys that have paroled from Preston, got out, got a beef and had gone to. So these guys just paroled a few months prior to me getting there. Now they're in San Quentin. They're getting letters, you know, and it's like, uh, you know, it's all glamorous, you know, all homeboys at San Quentin, you know. And uh <clears throat> we were getting this is seventy seven, seventy-eight, so we were getting letters also from PVI, which is Tracy, California. And uh so Tracy had um the northern Hispanic gangs there, um and and and, and black gangs, you know, and they were killing white dudes pretty regular and so one of my friends brothers was there <clears throat> a guy in the youth authority was there we're getting letters like it was a fucking nightmare you know and so you start developing uh a uh i don't want to say a hatred but you know you start developing this thing like us and them you know like we're us and that's them and uh Also, we had Northern Mexicans and Southern Mexicans in the same place. I'd never experienced that before. And, uh, I remember, you know, I was a fuck up. I was always in trouble. Um, but the, one of the last things I did, it got me sent. They also had a hole there. Tamarack. They had a lockup side and a program side and, uh, this this guy I knew uh, had a cherry bomb, and he slid it over to me. Hey, check this out. And I go, cool. So I was in my cell, and they come down and pick up the mail. You slide your mail out under your door, and the co- cop, you know, the counselor or whatever bends over, picks it up. So I lit that cherry bomb and slid out in the hallway. <laughs> it sounded, it was pretty loud. And I did it right when he was picking up the mail. And, uh, yeah, they freaked the fuck out, you know. And uh, said I tried to blow him up and all kinds of shit. So they sent me over to Tamarack, which is, uh, that's the hole. And then, uh, so for a white dude to go to Tamarack, you kind of had to be invited over there. Couldn't just go over there. And, <clears throat> and uh, so I was in the hole for about a month. And then they go, hey, once you come over to the program side, I'm like, all right. So we went over there and I uh, only had a few months left. You know, it was all about handball weights. We ate good. Uh it was cool. They had uh and they were programming the the whites were out all day. There was only a couple blacks, they were out all day. And they would program the Southerners in the morning, northerners in the afternoon in the afternoon, you know. And then they decided that that uh that they were gonna program the the northerners and the southerners together and and one of the southerners I was pretty cool with cuz he was tattooing, you know. And I was getting into tattooing and drawing and he was from Compton 155th. and uh he was a cool ass dude but um that's when I really seen like knives and and uh so you know, we kind of sided up with the, with the Southerners, and because uh, there was only a couple of them, we were holding their pieces for them, made sure they had knives, and so they let the Northerners out. And I remember the, my friend that was a tattoo guy. He, I remember him sliding up on one of them dudes, and he says, "This isn't going to work. You know, this isn't happening." And uh about two days later, well, prior to this. Um, so right after they let him out and all that uh, we went over to, to chapel on Sunday and on the way back we jumped on some guy and beat him down <clears throat> I didn't know it was going to be uh, three on one but uh, so they locked me up and I had like a month left and so they locked me up for my last 30 days so right after I got locked up the northerners and southerners went at it and uh yeah, yeah. They look like a little .38, and, uh, but it's got four bullets in it with a plug in the end. So when a tear gas pellet comes out, it... yeah, so, you know, Preston was like the the end of the road for Youth Authority. It was like um, once you hit a certain age, it was all older guys, you know, and it was pretty much guys that had been through Youth Authority or came in as, you know, at a elderly for Youth Authority. And then, so the next step was Tracy, which was DVI. And at the time, you know, like I said, we we're getting letters from guys to Tracy. And, uh, you know, the white guys were pretty thin there. And they were, they were uh, you know, victimized pretty much by the uh, uh, northern Hispanic prison gang and the black prison gangs. Um, you know, they were killing white dudes on a pretty regular basis and preying on them. So it was, it was, uh, they, then they, they threatened to send me there and like, yeah, we're going to send you to Tracy. Well, I was a juvenile commitment. You have to be an adult commitment to go to Tracy. So they would have had to take me back to court. I think it was called under 1800, some penal code. And then they could have sent me there, but I only had a few months left. So I just kind of laughed at them, you know, and <clears throat> I took everything kind of lightly, really. And I probably shouldn't have, you know,
1: <laughs>
0: but, um. You because know, I knew they couldn't send me to Tracy, but I had friends there and it was, you know, it was, uh, it was pretty crazy. Um, you know, DVI was, was created, the dual family donated that land to the state to build a prison for young adults to learn vocational training that, and there was supposed to be no guns inside the prison, you know, in the housing units and they had to maintain a certain amount of trades and all that stuff. And so <clears throat> it was predominantly young guys there, you know, uh, anyway, I paroled from there. Um, I stayed out about almost a year. Then I got a case that got me a life sentence, but, uh, so I paroled with, with all this new, new you know, uh, information <laughs> and anger and, you know, just hostility and, you know, you, you're living around violence now. And, you know, I, I actually saw my first stabbing in jail in, in Preston. Uh, I remember one day I was going to Chow, <clears throat> and this guy went up behind these Northerners. He was a Southerner. And he started, he stabbed one of them, stabbed the other guy. He stabbed two guys, and he chased another guy around the building with the knife and stabbed him on the around the back of the building, and then yeah leo it was it was uh it was quite a sight you know
1: when you see something yeah. like that, what's going through your
0: head? Well, I was just like, wow, you know this is serious shit you know, but um you know I was sixteen uh and uh these guys are like early twenties you know, and uh I had been around violence, so you know you kind of you normalize it, you're already normalized violence. And so now you have to act like uh, it doesn't bother you. And then you develop a thing where it really doesn't bother you. You know, it's kind of a progression. Um, Does it make you want to get a shank? uh, We had knives, white guys had knives, you know, but uh, you know, then we had a riot in the chow hall. This is before I went over to Tamarack.
1: What was the riot over?
0: Uh, they had a Muhammad Ali fight, and they were yelling out the windows, you know, because everybody had radios and stuff. And and uh, some white dude had words with some of the blacks, and that was on the other side of the unit, so I didn't really know about it. So when we came out to go to chow, uh, you know, it just kicked off with the blacks over so just yelling out the windows, talking shit, you know, and guys being young and and uh, wanting to prove their how big their nuts are, you know, I guess. Mm. But, uh so I seen this stuff. And when I paroled, um, yeah, I took that with me to the street, you know. And uh I didn't really have any direction, you know, because I was a fuck up. You know, they had a trade, they had a trades at Preston. It's Preston School of Industry, PSI, they call it. But they had all kinds of vocational training there, but I couldn't go there uh because i was a fuck up they have these bullshit uh uh i don't know what you would call them like behavior modification programs they were experimenting with all that stuff on guys in youth authority and so they have point systems and you know good bad and if you're good you get to go to the vocational area and so i couldn't go you know so i didn't learn anything other than um you know bullshit violence and and, you know, learn a little bit more about drugs and drug sales. And yeah, you learn about crime, you know, because you're not doing anything else with your with yourself. Um, you know, if they would have let me go up to the, the vocational area, I might have picked up some knowledge on, you know, vocational stuff. I might have got a job when I got up. I, got, I had no direction, really. <clears throat> you know, I got a motorcycle and started hanging around, uh guys that ride bikes, you know, and, uh, got introduced to crank and, uh, you know, prior to that was just weed and, you know, pills drinking. So now I get introduced to crank and I'm like, you know, wow, without really understanding, uh, how strong it was, how powerful it was. Um, I remember I had a homegirl before I went to prison. She was, uh, pretty good looking and she had tons of turquoise jewelry i mean tons of it and when i got out it was i am like what happened to all your turquoise And she had hawked it all for crank you know mm. it was all gone and I, I didn't really make the connection
1: you know so the view is in england mitch could you just explain what crank is
0: it's you know methamphetamine so
1: now they just call it meth and it's not really
0: the same you know, back then it was made right here in California. So now it's made across the border in Mexico. Or it's pretty nasty.
1: So it was and a different, it always, it was a different remember, recipe back then. Was it like the biker recipe? Yeah, the,
0: yeah biker shit. You know, bikers kind of controlled the, the crank scene, you know. And it, it was kind of like there was money in it for the guys up top, you know. And there was money in it all the way down the food chain. But it was kind of like a party, you know. It was a party drug. And I was talking to somebody about that this past weekend, you know, it was, it was a party. Um, You can stay up for a few days or a few weeks and then, you know, uh, take some pills, go to sleep, you know, or drink some whiskey, go to sleep, and get up and you're okay, you know, but.
1: When I was uh, introduced to crystal meth in Phoenix, I was in my twenties and I just felt superhuman. I had all this energy. I didn't need to sleep. I didn't need to eat. That's mm -hmm. how it started out at least. Did you feel similar?
0: Yeah, I just felt like, man, you know, you just feel like you're on top of the world and you get all these thoughts going through your head on how you can do things, make money, and everybody's kind of chatty, and, uh, yeah, it was cool. But, I mean, we had, you know, we'd come up with schemes, and, you know, I started, you know, buying guns and jewelry and, uh, you know, to finance the, I made some money, but, uh, Mostly it was just to, to support my daily life and to keep the crank flowing.
1: What know? were the gun laws like in California back then?
0: <clears throat> you know, you couldn't have guns. If you're an ex-felon, you couldn't have guns. I couldn't have a gun. Um, but, you know, one of my connections was, would take guns down to Mexico and sell them. You know, Mexico didn't have the weapons they have now, like the cartels and all that stuff. So, <clears throat> I mean, they would take a single shot Twenty-two rifles down there and sell them. Any gun you could get, they would take it.
1: So it was easy getting them into Mexico. Is it coming out that they search you?
0: I don't know. Evidently, she had a route, you know, to get down there. So Um, and uh, so, I would just buy up guns from guys that wanted to get loaded on that crank and you know take them to the connection and you know that's how that went. Uh, So now I'm, you know, I'm around. Then, you know, when you stay up for an extended length of time, it starts to change your personality and you start accepting things like, uh, you know, I got involved in some violence here and there, um, carrying a knife, having a gun available, and uh, without really realizing, you know, that, hey, you know, these things, these weapons are for hurting people and possibly killing people. And, you know, it's just something you do. You carry a knife and you get in a problem, you use it. Or if you've got a gun, someone fucks you around real bad or you feel like your life's in danger, you know, you got a gun, you'll use it. And and when you're up for an extended period of time without sleep, it makes it, you know, you're vulnerable to uh, a split, you know, spree the moment reaction, you know? And uh, that, none of that stuff ever crossed my mind when it's out there living like that, you know? I mean, I turned 17 years old, I was still a kid, And, uh, you know, I was hanging around guys that were bikers and guys that I admired growing up in my neighborhood, you know, now I'm starting to get older. And, you know, I remember one of the things was, you know, some of them guys see me using the the crank and all that shit. And they're like, you know, whatever you do, don't fucking shoot dope. You know, you turn yourself into fucking dope fiend, uh, we catch you shooting dope or break your fucking arm, you know, shit like that, you know, that was a no, no, you know, um, you know, guys that shoot dope. Uh, back then, the, the philosophy was: you know, if you shoot dope, you're weak, and you will tell, and whatever. And I think that comes from guys in the past that were shooting dope, and they did turn informant. You know, so that's kind of where that philosophy came from. You know, but uh, you know, I was, I was headed for a wreck. You know, and, I, and a lot of my homeboys, I had a, a crew of guys that I grew up with, where I was like the youngest guy in the crew. The oldest guy might have been 24, 25. They all had motorcycles. I had a motorcycle. Um, they were into customizing bikes and, you know, making choppers. That was, choppers were, everybody had choppers back then, you know. <clears throat> you know, the extended forks and custom paint jobs and all that shit. So that crew of guys would always tell me, man, bro, you got to slow down. You know, you, you're, you're headed for a wreck. We're worried you're going to get killed. You're going to go to prison and. I was just like, hey, I'm cool. I got this, you know, you know. I was like, hey, F, F this, you know, I'm cool, I got it. So I started not, you know, I started separating myself from them guys a little bit. And those are guys I grew up with. And uh, I actually see one of them now, he lives close by. Um, Yeah, and it's just like, you know, I started hanging out more with a criminal element, you know, because of the drugs, really the crank, you know, I mean, I smoked weed and I still take some pills once in a while, but it was mostly the crank, you know, trying to figure out how to get more of it, how to sell more of it, you know? <clears throat> yeah. So
1: did you get yeah. paranoid off it? Cause I started to get paranoid off it over time and seeing imaginary um, things i have been awake for too long.
0: Yeah. I, you know, I did, but, um, I live with my friend and his mom and she was an old biker chick, you know? and uh, I remember I got on the roof one time and she's like, what the fuck you doing up there? I had been watching these cars drive by our house. We live kind of in a, in a semi-rural area, you know? And she's like, uh, and so I got on the roof and I watched his car and she's like, what the fuck you doing on the roof? Smiley, get down from there, you know? And uh, and uh, I said, man, they're, these are cops watching us. And uh, she's like, you're crazy. So what happened was the car would drive around the block a couple times and then park, and it was a building like a muffler shop, right? Auto body or auto mechanic muffler shop. And then the guy would get out of the car and get in another car and then drive around the block, and that car would leave, and then park. I've seen it, you know, and, and I started looking real closely at it from the roof, and it was just a facade. It was a fake building. It had like half sides and a front. I was like, wow, you know, and and (laughs) so I told her, come on, let's go check this out, Carol. And and I drove her by there and showed her. She was like, wow, you know, because my connection with the guns lived in the same neighborhood. So, yeah, so I did get a little paranoid, but I got, you know, I got uh, I got to realizing, hey, you know, they're watching us, you know, but uh, and, you know, like I got a life sentence for my crime. Which, so, like, violence was, like, no big deal, you know? You could do that out in the open, who gives a shit, right? Beat someone down. <clears throat> and eventually in this bar fight, you know, um, one of my co-defendants stabbed a guy and he died and I got a life sentence. But when it came to the drug deal, I was, like, super paranoid, super, you know, and guys would teach me shit, like, you know, don't take money from people in front of other people and just... I was really paranoid about selling dope. I didn't want to get caught selling dope. And I remember when I was in the county jail, I met this uh, Mexican cat, you know, from Logan Heights. And he's like, yeah, I got caught with, he got caught with three ounces of heroin, three pieces of heroin, you know. Like, how much time are you getting? He's out five years. I got, I thought, man, that ain't shit. I'm in here facing a life sentence, you know, and this guy's only going to do five years. And back then you did two thirds of your time a good time i thought i could have been selling that dope just wide open and making a gang of money and the worst thing that would have happened to me was i would have got four or five years
1: what started the bar fight mitch
0: um you know a guy came in he was a motorcycle club and um they really didn't get along with some of the guys i knew and started talking shit um words exchanged uh and he, you know, hit my co-defendant code in the face with a beer pitcher, knocked him down. They were both 24 years old. I was 17, so you know, I jumped up, started punching the guy a few times, and uh, and the guy that got hit got up. They staggered out on the sidewalk, and um, I went out there, and the guy was on top of my co-defendant, code um, you know, socking him up. So I started kicking the guy. Um, you know, and then I uh, started kind of stomping on him. And then the next thing I know, you know, he got stabbed. So.
1: Isn't, wasn't there a self-defense element to that?
0: Um, for me, I, I just wanted to kind of beat him down and get him up off my co-defendant. But, uh, you know, uh, somebody else stabbed him during the course of that. So, <clears throat> you know, we got busted. Um and they offered the guy who was getting beaten up, actually. And then me, they offered me a, a, some manslaughter. And they offered the other guy uh, second-degree murder. It was a deal. But, uh, and so I would have got six years if I would have got a manslaughter. Um, but it was a package deal. My lawyers this is a package deal. All you guys have to take the deal or there's no deal. And if one guy wants to take the deal and the other guys don't, then you have to, get on the witness stand and say what your part in the crime was. Um, Which my lawyer goes, you know, once you get on the witness stand, I can ask you whatever you want. And I was like, you know, there's no deal. You know, so we went to trial.
1: How many co-defendants were there?
0: Two. Two. And uh, we all got second degree murder. Oh, Um,
1: shit.
0: So it's like, I was guilty of aiding and abetting by vicarious liability, so I'm I'm liable for the actions of the others because I was involved with the fight part of it, you know. Um, but really, you know, like people don't understand, um, you know, once you get once you get accused of a crime like that, and you're going, you know, if you don't, if you don't take their deal and you go to trial, they pull out all the stops. Um,
1: hope you're enjoying this podcast. There's a word from our sponsor, Rocket Money. The other day, I had to cancel free Amazon Prime memberships. I had a personal on the UK, Amazon, US, Amazon, company account, US, Amazon, UK, Amazon. Do you understand how hard it is to cancel these bloody things? That's why Rocket Money makes these things so much easier, formerly known as Truebill. The app shows all your subscriptions in one place and cancels what you don't want for you. Rocket Money can even find subscriptions you didn't know you were paying for. Just like with me with my four Amazon Prime memberships, you may find out you've been at least double-charged for a subscription. To cancel a subscription, all you've got to do is press Cancel and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Get rid of useless subscriptions with Rocket Money now. Go to rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Seriously, it could save you hundreds per year. That's rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N thank you for supporting our sponsor rocket money links in the description box cheers
0: and if you get found guilty you're going to get broke off as much as they can give you but during the preliminary uh trial all the witnesses you know there was really nothing tying me to the 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 murder part of it and they and they questioned this one guy that i was living with eric and, and he said uh and they said, when did he come home and tell you they stabbed this guy in a bike club? And he said, they didn't say anything about a motorcycle club. They didn't say anything about a stabbing. All they said was that they came home and they got in a fight in a bar. So <clears throat> during the trial, the judge says, you know, it's obvious this guy was involved with a stabbing aspect of the case. But these other two guys, all you prove is they got in a fight in a bar and they ran away before the cops got there. They got two days to prove they knew about the stabbing or they were involved with the stabbing. and so. The only witness left was this guy, Eric. And uh, so he comes on, my lawyer's like, you're good. You're going to beat this. And he gets on the witness stand and says uh, that we came home and told him we stabbed a guy in a bike club. Right. So um, it just goes to show you, like when you're accused of a crime, um, especially back then, uh, they'll pull out all the stops to get you, to get you put in prison. They don't, they don't really care if you're innocent or guilty and, you know, proof of that is the Innocence Project here in the United States. Um, they're getting guys out of prison all the time that were that are being proven innocent. And a friend of mine actually did 36 years uh, and was proven innocent. So <clears> the <throat> circumstances in a case they don't really care about, they'll fabricate information and, and uh, do whatever it takes to get you behind bars. So they get, they get a notch on their belt, you know, for every conviction they get. So that's something for guys to think about, you know, um, if they get in the mix, you know, you're, you're not only competing with other guys that are in the mix. You're actually, you have to worry about law enforcement and they're in the mix too. Law enforcement is in the mix and they play by the same rules, but they, they have a little bit more juice than we do. Right. So, you know, they got the guns and the jails and the finances. Um,
1: And and they get people to say anything to drop the charges against other people. Yeah,
0: yeah. So I got convicted, and uh, I went to youth authority for a ninety day observation. Which you know, my lawyer's like, you know, it'll be a, you'll get a little reprieve before you go to prison because I'm sure they're not going to accept you. Um, So I went to youth authority for about thirty days, actually, and they're like, yeah, we're not taking you.
1: When that sentence came in, what was that day like for you?
0: Um, I I knew what it was coming, and uh, but so I went and got sentenced, and then I saw my attorney after that, and, and I got fifteen to so life. So that gave term, you hope.
1: That gave you hope.
0: Well, your term is fifteen years, and so you do two thirds of that, then you're eligible for parole, and you go in front of the parole board. Um, because I had an indeterminate sentence. They have that life at the end of it. Um, Whereas other guys, uh, they get determinate sentences. They get a set term, you know. So anyway, I, I told my lawyer, so I'm going to do 10 years. I was in the attorney room. I had a pack of cigarettes in my hand. I'm sitting, you know, I'm I'm kind of like, you know, playing the role, you know, like, uh, you know, whatever. And he goes, no, you're not going to do 10 years. He goes, you're going to be eligible for parole in 10 years. And then you're going to go in front of a parole board and they don't have to let you out. And I I just thought about that for a minute. I remember I dropped that pack of cigarettes on the floor and I put my head down. I was like, man, cause you know, I knew I I was, I was a screw up, you know, I was, I was not your model prisoner. I was not going to be a model inmate, you know, and I just knew, you know, all right it's going to be a long road, you know? So, yeah. And so guys in in the jail were saying, uh, um, you know, when you go to prison, you can fuck up all you want. And then when you get about five years to board, then you start cleaning up your act shows progress, this and that, you know, I'm like, yeah, all right, whatever. (laughs) Um, Of course the, the program changed, you know, during the course of my prison term, uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, you go to prison. I remember when I took the you know, the bus to Chino, which is a reception center. And, uh, you know, I talk about this on my channel, you know, I got there and, and, uh, I was 18 years old, you know? And, uh, They bring you in this dock. It's up off the ground. It's a a dock. It's a loading dock. And it's got bars. And you go into R&R. Receiving and release, you know. And they put a trash can. Everyone's in a circle around this trash can. The cop tells you, take everything you got and put in that trash can. You're not supposed to take anything with you to prison from county jail. And, uh. I thought, man, you know, everything you got left from the county jail that came from the streets with you is going in that trash can. And so that's like, uh, that's like the final, you know, shutting that door on, on the world. And it, now you're here and this is where you're going to be. I remember that feeling.
1: What year was that?
0: January of 1980. I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty, you know, it was quite a deal, you know. And then, of course, you know, you got to put on your happy face, you know, your facade, you know. uh, You know, people talk about, you know, their, you know, stone cold, whatever kind of personality. But um, I don't think anybody could go in that situation and not feel you know kind of uh i don't know what the word would be um uh you got a little bit of fear and you got a little bit of uh hopelessness and all that kind of stuff in a big bundle you know but you can't who do you talk to who do you, who do you say that to <laughs> hey bro you feel kind of hopeless <laughs> <You know? laughs> i mean nobody's gonna they all got their tough guy face on you know and so, uh, yeah, I went to uh, my housing unit and I had a single cell. And, you know, they put younger dudes, I guess. And they take me down to, uh, you know, uh, they do an assessment on your education, your psychological stuff, all that stuff there. And they have inmates doing these, you know, the testing and whatnot. And they're like, you're going to be in here for three days. And I'm like, dude, I just spent a year in a county jail. I don't want to be in here for three days. I want to go to the yard, play handball, and lift weights. You know, so I told me, hey, screw this. I'm cool.
1: <clears throat>
0: so this sergeant put me in another unit that had just been coming off lockdown for a, a, a racial stabbing. Um, they're still on lockdown, slowly letting them out. And, you know, I didn't last a couple of weeks. I got an altercation with somebody, uh, went to the hole.
1: What was it over?
0: just uh fat mouthing on a tear you know fuck fuck this fuck that fuck the white boy hey white boy this white boy that you know just standard shit that you know you're not supposed to put up with in my mind from youth authority um you know in youth authority the whites are like hey the whites are for the whites you know that's how it was and you kind of think that's what it's going to be like in prison. And then, you know, later on, you find out it's really not. Um, so I got, a, uh, I got a stab in there with the hole. Later on, I got transferred up to San Quentin. And I did uh, a few years in the shoe. Which, uh, you know, you see guys getting stabbed on a pretty regular basis. Guys getting shot you know, mostly with a shotgun, they use seven and a half grain birdshot. Um, you know, that's why guys don't fight really. Um, guys talk about no fighting policies and all that. They they were guys would fight, but mostly guys don't want to get shot. So they would stab you. Um, <clears throat> you know, if you stab a guy two or three times, that's the equivalent of a fist fight. Cause you can slide up on somebody and, poke a few holes in them and keep moving without getting shot or caught. So that's kind of where the stabbing shit came from. And then there were guys that would stab people to try to kill them. You know, you start seeing all this shit. And um, I remember one guy tried to escape They put this dude on our yard. And and I guess I found out later he was a nut, you know, and the psych says, well, if he goes to the exercise yard, it'll be good for him to get some fresh air, you know? And so, I mean, these guys are working out in the corner and then they have lunch, they bring out, uh, they give you a cup of soup through the fence, you know, and then a sandwich and we lunch and the whole yard though, this guy was staring at us over in the corner, walking back and forth. I thought, what the fuck's up with that dude, you know? And so I went over to the fence when everybody eats, sometimes they'll give you extra soup or whatever, you know, and the gun rail is right on top of us. And they just started shooting, you know, and I look and it was that dude and he he was climbing the fence and they shot him off the fence and he got back on the fence again and they shot him with that mini 14 oh. and dropped him. Uh, it went in his shoulder and it came out his other side by oh. his hip bullet, you know, Because a mini 14 bullet uh, tumbles when it goes in you, you know, oh. It's designed, I guess, to tear your guts up. You know, like if it goes in and hits a bone, it'll change direction and bounce around inside your body. But the dude lived. um, Yeah, you know, you see shit like that. Stabbings, guys get killed, guys get shot. You know, they have a gun rail, which is 15, 20 feet from the tier. They would shoot you right on the tier, you know, with a shotgun. That's pretty close range. Uh seemed like guys were getting shot pretty much every day there, stabbed pretty much every day. It was a pretty violent prison. Um, I think that was uh, the most extreme violence I lived around my entire term was there.
1: San Quentin.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's an old prison, you know. The last building was, uh, I think they finished building North Block in 1934. It opened in 1852, I think. But, I mean, it was a prison ship, and then they started building. And,
1: um, we had a guy called John Abbott on. He's really popular on my channel, and he's told us I've all kinds him. of stories from, yeah, San Quintus. I've
0: seen a yeah. whole
1: different level of violence, uh, raw survival, yeah. co- compared to, like, the modern industrial camera duck prisons. It's just...
0: Yeah, well, you know, the very first building the state of California ever built, you know, when it became a state... Uh, part of the Union of the United States was the dungeon at San Quentin. That's the first thing they ever built as a state, and it's still there. Um, it's a historical monument. So, I mean, that place is is so old. There's so many blind spots, and uh, you know, the guys that worked the gun rails, the guards, they're pretty good. They could see just about everything, and they would. Some of them guys could reload their shotgun while they were shooting it. I mean, it was just insane, and they and they were. And those guys that shot people on a regular basis, and some of them enjoyed it, they never worked on the ground. They worked on the gun rail exclusively because guys got developed a pretty severe hatred for them, you know?
1: Were you there uh, when Schwarzenegger came there?
0: No, I think I was in the hole. But I I do have – some of my friends were there. They worked out with him. (laughs) You know, I really got much love for Arnie. Uh, He was in Preston. He came to Preston when I was in Preston. And I seen him there. But in in San Quentin, a couple of my friends were in the gym working out. He went and worked out with him for a few hours. And he was like, man, you know, you guys do wait too much time. (laughs) And then when he became a governor, some of those guys were still in prison. And he took the hard, tough on crime shit that all his predecessors took. So kind of a hypocrite you know for once again you know guys take the route of you know follow follow the leader for their own success so i mean i don't know i think it's kind of hypocritical and uh you know
1: did johnny cash ever go to quentin
0: they did not not when i was there but yeah you know johnny cash uh well it was before my time but He actually funded the cable system in the in the prisons for our TVs. He
1: gave
0: gave up the money to put cable. You know, it goes to an antenna on the roof back then. You know, you know, people think about cable. I mean, we don't even have cable now. We have internet stuff. So, yeah, Johnny Cash funded the cable system for the televisions. Uh, You could have a TV in your cell. So all that was funded by Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash was was a decent guy, man definitely okay. yeah
1: so what was your routine in Quentin
0: uh you know you had yard every other day so I would uh go to the yard work out come in you know take a bird bath or shower in the yard and then uh catch a nap I'd stay up all night drawing you know I had uh you had a single cell back then in the hall so my bed's a cookie sheet And back then they had hobby in the hole. You could order art supplies in the hole, all that stuff, you know. So I got into my drawing, you know, and I got into tattooing, uh, tattooed on my legs and got, you know, pretty good at tattooing and drawing. Um, And then I would, the next day I'd sleep all day, stay up all night drawing in yard, you know, that was my routine. I just got into my artwork, read a few books, you know, but, uh, that was it.
1: So did the art and the tattooing, did that become your hustle?
0: Yeah, later on. I mean at that time I was just trying to learn how to draw and how to you know how to tattoo and um you know and then I I, I met this counselor. I, uh this counselor came on the tier, she goes, Hi, I'm I'm your new counselor. And she later on became the director of CDC. <laughs> uh I go, So what? You know, I'm like, so what? And, you know, I've been in the hole for a while and I'm like, uh, you know, so she started talking to me and she's like, I go, look, I want to get the fuck out of the hole. She goes, give me a year clean and I'll get you out of the hole. I go, is your word good? And she goes, my word's good. So during that, I told some of my homeboys, hey, I'm going to try and, you know, get the fuck out of here. I got a life sentence. I got to go to board. I got to get out of the hole eventually. So they're all, all right. Like I don't really want to be involved in shit, you know. And and I remember uh, you know, a couple of my homeboys from San Diego on the yard, and and this they brought a bunch of guys from Tracy. And uh I don't know much about them. And so some of the guys on my tier on my yard were they had been at Tracy. And so I see this guy, he's a white dude, and I'm talking to him, yeah, what's up, you know. Well, in Tracy, they had white dudes that would conspire against other white dudes for the for the uh, for the NF, basically. I think they called them the New White Family or some shit. But uh, yeah, I, I think they were just scared to death, you know. So if they heard white dude talking about plotting against somebody, you know, they would go and tell them guys, and then they'd stab the white dudes. Evidently, one of these guys came to my yard. That was one of them. I didn't know because I hadn't been to Tracy yet, you know. I remember I was sitting there on a curb eating and my homeboy was on my right and this guy's sitting next to me and there's a gun rail right straight this way, you know, and uh, my homeboy just leaned over me and started stabbing this dude. And uh, I'm like, what the fuck? And I got, I mean, I grabbed my sack lunch and my sandwich and I walked over, you know, I got about 15 feet away and they started shooting them, you know, <laughs> I remember that dude walking off the yard and he, and he had a big shiny knife sticking out of his shoulder. But, uh, I said, Hey homeboy later on, you know, when he came back to the yard, I found out that that that's why he had stabbed that guy. He was one of them dudes, you know? And, and, uh, I said, Hey homeboy, what the fuck, man, you could have got me shot. And he goes, uh, and I was in youth authority with this guy, Joe. And and he goes, uh, well, shit, man, you said you didn't want to be involved anymore. <laughs> And, uh, so, you know, we're just respecting your, your wishes. And I go, man, next time, give me like a heads up, like five minute heads up, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, that was San Quentin, you know, that was prison back then, really. And so, um, my counselor, um, she goes, you know, you've been in the hole for a while. Nobody wants you. I, and, and I had, they came out with a point system. And so every time you get a ride up you get more points, you get points for the length of your term. And so 52 points is a level four and above. Well, I had like 164 points. I didn't know that at the time. And she's like, look, I, I put you up for Soledad a couple of times and they don't want you. Tracy don't want you. So she goes, I'm going to get you sent to uh, to CMF for this. It's called a security housing decompression unit to, to kind of filter you back into a main line you know, you've been in a hole around all this violence, you know. She goes, but if you go there, CMF's a pretty laid-back pin. You know, they had all the lifer programs there, Category T, Category X. This was a Category V. And uh, she goes, if you go there and you fuck up, you're going to go back to level four and you're not going to get out for at least 10 years. You'll be in level four, so think about it. And I go, all right. You know, about a week later, I said, hey, run it. I'm good, you know. And so, uh, and I thought about it for a week and I go, you know, this is a fucked up place to be. I got a shot, you know, and fuck it. So I went there and they send you to the hole there. And then I got a job in the kitchen in the hole. You kind of work your way out to the main line. I got the main line there and uh, it was wide open. I was in G3, which was uh, almost, almost all lifers. They had five dorms and then cells. And uh, they put me in a dorm. It was a Friday, and this cop, Smitty, worked Friday and Saturday nights, and he just didn't give a fuck about nothing. It was a party, like you know, his thing was basically don't, no, no violence, you know. So the front door was open, so guys were coming from other units, other floors. CMF is sectioned off in floors. Each each floor is separate from the other, and I mean, you know. I would just stand in the hallway, man, and and guys doors were, were open, guys were in there smoking weed, drinking, just it was just a fucking full on party and and I was such used to such a restricted environment. I was just like, Wow, you know, that kind of blew me away. Um, I wasn't really paranoid, but I thought, man, this is fucking crazy.
1: <laughs>
0: you know? And uh yeah, I got into milling cabinet. I took I got into a vocation there. Yeah, I, I went to the kitchen for a while, you know. I mean, I never really had a real job in prison yet, you know. And, uh, I mean, there was a lot of dope there, a lot of weed, crank, whatever you wanted. Guys are making wine. <clears throat> it's like a little – prison's like a little city, you know. And and so uh, there were some guys there that were bikers into the pen, you know. This is like – it's like a vacation from hell being there, you know and uh and everybody knows they're not going to be there for a long time they got to do their little program and uh and then go back to prison <clears throat> but you know i met some guys there that um there were some guys were bike clubs some guys were just bikers some guys were bikers that hung around bike clubs and uh you know i was a kid you know i think i was like i not know 22 23 maybe and uh yeah, and I got in a little trouble, and uh, I went to Ed's for a minute, and uh, um, yeah, so I met these guys. You know, they're biker dudes. They're older than me. Someone been in prison since like 1970, now around 84, 85. You know, and and I got in a little trouble. You know, still kind of an asshole. You know, still young, and uh, you know you live through that kind of violence and that kind of madness. I mean, people can say, you know, whatever they want, you know, like it didn't bother them and they're, you know, but it it does bother you. And it didn't, and, you know, you become, you do normalize it and you kind of accept it as it's a reality of your uh, environment, but um, it still bothers you. And it, 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 you know, different people react. Some people uh, isolate and become, you know, internalize everything and some people act out and I acted out, you know, I was—I didn't, you know, instead of saying, Hey, I really don't know how to handle this shit. You know, I just acted like I could handle it. And just like everyone else does. And, um, you know, I still had some crazy behaviors, you know, I got a little bit of trouble. And, uh, so these guys, you know, I remember I got out at SIG and, and, uh, there was a deputy warden there that had worked his way up from CO to deputy warden. And he kind of liked us. His name was Nyberg, Bill Nyberg. And uh, so that all the guys on the main line there were called Nyberg's kids. <laughs> so, uh, you know, some of the guys I knew uh, told him, Hey, give a kid a chance. And he came down and seen me. He goes, I'm going to let you stay here. You got one chance. He's, and he was a short guy, bald head, older guy. And uh, he goes, and if you fuck up, I'm going to send you to a pit. You understand what I'm saying? I go, I do, you know, and I said, I gave you my word. I'd, pro- I'd be good and I intend to keep it. So the pit, you know, it's Folsom, you know, uh, end of the world. And so his thing was just no violence and don't get caught with dope. You know, don't get caught with drugs and no violence. It was pretty easy to, you know, and, and the older guys that knew, you know, guys that became good friends with, you know, they're like, Hey, what do you want to do? You know, you want to party and make money or you want to be in and out of the hole all the time. I said, I want to party and make money. And so they taught me how to do that. And they taught me how to live, you know, in prison. And, and of course, the the skills that they taught me as a young guy uh, carried through even to this day, you know, and, uh, that's when I started focusing on getting a trade. I got in the milling cabinet, um, and then they had hobby shops where you could work with wood, jewelry, art, all that kind of stuff. So I would go down to a hobby shop. You had to buy your own wood and all your own materials. And then they had a store out front where you could sell your products, you know. Um, I started doing woodwork and doing my artwork. And I started tattooing pretty regular. Um, you know, that, that prison was really wide open. They had yard unlocks every half hour. Um, a lot of free movement. Um, I would go from floor to floor, tattooing, uh, sling a little bit of dope, you know, make some money. Uh, and then like a lot of the money I'd made, I would flip it over into hobby and I'd buy wood and different stuff and make products, sell them in a hobby store. And I thought, man, you know, selling, uh, jewelry boxes, you know, chess boards, all that kind of stuff, wooden toys, whatever, you you know. I thought this is just like selling dope, but it's legal, you know. I mean, in prison, if you can make, you know, four or five, ten thousand bucks a year in prisons doing that. I mean, that was pretty good hustle, you know. And some guys made 10, 15 grand a year in hobby. It was uh of course they took all that away. Um, but uh so I got in a groove there, and I went from one program to the next, and then they had about three programs you could do as lifers, you know. And uh you know, while I was there, you know, there was, I remember there was, there was a few murders there. It was a pretty mellow prison. Um, <clears throat> but every now and then somebody would get killed, you know? And, uh, you know, I remember one dude and they gave him a shot of dope and, uh, you, know, he, you know, he slammed it. And when he slammed it, uh, dude, you know, ran a piece in his neck and I heard his head flopped over backwards. Pretty brutal, you know?
1: Was it over a drug debt then?
0: Uh, kind of, you know. He was, uh, yeah, I guess he owed some money to somebody, you know. And then uh, there was one. There was this little Pisic guy down on the first tier, and uh, this big dude, my size, black dude, took his shit, you know. And he's like, "Hey, give him my shit back," you know. And the guy's like, "You know, fuck you." And so he went and got a piece, stabbed him, killed him, you know. Immense. Uh, they had about. Say, I was there about four and a half years. They had I don't know seven or eight murders, you know. So there wasn't a lot of violence there, but when there was violence, it was usually a killing, you
1: know. You, so, mean, you um, mentioned the bikers then. So the, the bikers, did they have dual status in the Aryan Brotherhood? No, no, that's
0: not true. I heard that uh, on your show and, <clears throat> you know, he was talking about one guy that was in Folsom and I believe his name is Moose and a uh, big guy, heavy-sit dude. I heard he could play handball like crazy. He used to hang around some guys in a club out of the Bay Area, Oakland, but he was never a member. I don't even think he was a prospect. Um, And then, uh, you know, I knew Rotten Richard. Um, He mentioned that guy's name. Richard got kicked out of the club before he ever went to prison. He was not. He was not in the club when he was in prison, and he was not. And those, you know. Yeah, there's no dual status in a motorcycle club and a prison gang. There's no there's no such thing. You're either one or the other. Um, and actually, you know, guys in prison gangs, usually uh, back then, they didn't really care much for bikers-type guys, you know.
1: Hope you're enjoying the podcast. Here's a word from our sponsor, Harry's. Having such a scratchy face, I'm always delighted to get a new Harry's set. There's a foaming gel, hydrating night lotion... And the razor with the weighted handle really gets the job done. The trimmer blade makes it so easy to get into those tricky places to reach. The shave gel offers effective lubrication and just comes off like butter. It's such a smooth shave. It shaves fast, efficiently, no discomfort, and it is so smooth by the end. The hydrating night lotion is light and non-greasy. Harry's is doing a £0 trial. Start shaving with the products just pay for delivery. Save every time. Save on all your shaving products without sacrificing quality. You're in control. You can modify or cancel your plan from the account page. Make sure to support our podcast and start your own skincare journey by redeeming a free Harry's trial set. All you cover is £3.95 pence for delivery. Just head to harrys.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N, and have your trial set delivered to your door. That's harrys.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Thank you for supporting our sponsor.
0: Um, Some guys had, you know, respect or whatever, but, uh, you know, like some of my friends that were involved with the baseball bat incident, Tracy, they had a lot of respect for people over... You know, if you were in Tracy back then when the NF was killing white dudes and the BGF was killing white dudes um, and you survived that, you 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 know, them guys had a lot of respect coming for what they went through. <clears throat> but not, there's no dual membership in the prison gang and the motorcycle clubs. It's just, it's just <clears throat> no. <laughs> but, uh, you know, bikers in prison um, – they don't they're they they do not aspire to spend the rest of their life in prison. I mean and that's kinda something them dudes taught me, like, you know, there's a time to get with it and there's a time to relax and just you know, like they said, you wanna party and make money, you wanna be in a fucking hole all the time, you know? And so uh, you know, our goal is to get out of prison and, and you know, it's you know, the motorcycle lifestyle is about freedom and uh, you know, being an individual, respecting your other guys that are individuals. Uh, you know, that's what it's all about, man. So, you know,
1: did you come across Doug the Thug?
0: No, he left San Quentin before I got there. I didn't get the chance to meet him, but I have some friends that did. And uh, yeah, he was uh, quite a guy, quite a character, has quite a reputation, you know.
1: Have you got any Doug stories that you heard from those friends?
0: Uh, you know, I do have a friend, he went to prison, uh, pretty young like me, and and uh, you know, he he's. Uh, evidently, Doug had a couple, couple ladies in the hospital that would, uh, you know, involved with some prostitution stuff, you know. And he, and he was like, "Hey, youngster, you want some pussy?" You know, Oh shit. He, you know, he, you know, he's kind of, you know, he's. He, I, I can just picture him like, you know, he's like, "I don't know what to say, man." You know,
1: <laughs>
0: uh, he had it going on. You know, he was. Uh, he's from the old school and. You know, prison back then, you could have just about anything you wanted at that place. And and he had things going on. So, yeah, he was, uh, you know, I heard he was a stand-up dude. You know, he'd get with it, fight, whatever, do, you know, put up with no shit, all that. Um, Yeah, but I never got a chance to meet him, unfortunately. A little bit
1: before my day, you know. So if it went right. off with the if it went off with the other races, then everybody had to represent.
0: Sure, I mean, it, you know, it's not like uh, you know they say in war there's uh, long periods of boredom interrupted by short spurts of violence. You know, prison's the same way. Um, you know, you're always, you know, you're always uh, aware of what can happen at any time. I mean, all it takes is. At the drop of a hat, there could be something you know that could be life threatening. But for the most part, um, guys are going about their daily routine, uh, doing their thing. You know, guys are working in the law library. Guys are working in the dental lab. Guys are working in plant operations, carpenter shop. Guys are going to work, trade, trying to earn some money in industry and trying to hustle some food out of the kitchen. You know, so they could make some money and everyone's doing their thing. And, and, you know, it's not like all the white guys work here and all the black guys work there and all the Mexicans work there. So everyone's working together. Everyone's around each other all the time. And so it's not like, you know, you you don't go to work and be like, Hey, hey, fuck you guys. You know, I mean, you have to work with guys, you have to live around guys. And so for the most part, people get an understanding, uh, and they get along, you know,
1: it's it's not not it, like did did the, did any full scale race riots pop off
0: uh, yeah, I remember I was in a hole they had one in San Quentin that lasted quite a long time uh with the uh, the Mexicans and the blacks, I guess it was pretty bad but, I mean, I've been in a few riots here and there, and uh, it seemed like back in the day, Folsom and San Quentin were competing to see how many people they could <laughs> kill each year, you know, but uh you know I didn't. After 79, you know, pretty much right before I came to prison, they had a big thing in Folsom with the Blacks and whites. But after that, things, my time in prison, I really didn't have a lot of problems with the Blacks. Um, you know, later on at Lancaster, around the 2000, we started having some riots with the Southern Hispanics, Southern Mexicans would jump on the whites, you know, um, usually over drug debts, some fucking guy owed, you know, but, uh, yeah, so, I stayed in Vacaville, finished all the programs, and I went to, I went back to San Quentin, and they're like, welcome to San Quentin, you're going to Folsom, so they were making San Quentin a level two, you know, it's an antiquated prison, and they built a bunch of new prisons, you know, and uh, I had gone to the pro board for the first time, and they said, you know, you didn't finish your milling cabinet trade, so Uh, We don't have any documentation that you can support yourself when you get out. So we want you to finish your mill and cabinet trade. We want you to go to Tracy. And so I was like, you know, fuck Tracy. I want to go back to San Quentin. But I went there and they're like, you know, we're making it a level two. You're out of here. And and they sent me to New Folsom, uh, end of 88, beginning of 89. And I went to B yard, which is supposedly, you know, the asshole yard. It seems like everywhere I went after that, I always ended up on the asshole yard. <laughs> but, you know, the time I spent there around them guys uh, in, in CMF, you know, I, I kind of came into my own and I figured out how I was going to live in prison. And I was just going to, that's how I was going to do it, you know. And so I got to New Folsom and I mean, they had nothing. They had There was no hobby, no job, no jobs. And all I had was a nice weight pile, you know. <laughs> And I remember I met my friend David Marshall there, and I I went out to to the yard. They had emptied the shoe in the back, and that's where they put us. They sent them guys to Pelican Bay or whatever. And uh, so David Marshall tells me, you play baseball? I'm like, yeah, I play softball, you know, whatever. And uh, so we played the whites against the blacks, level four, 180 yard, you know. We're playing softball. I look over there, and there's like, a stack of sodas like four feet high, couple stacked. They're, they're gambling cases of sodas on a softball
1: game. You know? <laughs>
0: and, uh, that was pretty funny. <clears throat> but, you know, by now I'm into making money and hobby, partying a little bit. And just I'm like, you know, family visits. I got married in 1988. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, I'm just like, fuck this place. There's nothing here. It's a dead end, you know. And uh, so I put in, I I filed a 602, which is like a grievance or an appeal process thing. And I said, hey, you know, the pro board told me to go to DVI, Tracy, uh, and I'd like to be transferred to Tracy to finish my vocational training. Back then, if the board told you to do something, CDC would comply. You know, if they say go to, you know, go to Mars and, you know, whatever. I mean, they had to send you where the pro board requested you to go. And so they granted my 602 and I and I went to Tracy in May of eighty-nine. But I remember before I left, uh I had a homeboy there, had a big Superman thing tattooed on his chest, Chili. And then I had hair back then and I was young, you know, and I, I wore glasses and and I went through the chow line and this little uh South Sider from San Diego, he he loads up Chili's train, he goes, Superman. And he loads up my train, he goes, parking. You know, he gave us like double triple issue of food you know and and this black dude you know he gave him a scoop and he just looks at him and the guy stuck his tray out like for more and and he goes fuck you that's all you get and i was like wow and uh pretty disrespectful you know easy n-word you know so about I left about a week later and I uh, got my property in Tracy and turned on the news. They had a big fucking riot in New Folsom on B Yard right after I left. So a couple guys got killed, a lot of stabbings. Uh so I I skated out of that Well, being being there and I was pretty grateful for that. And uh so now I'm in Tracy. <clears throat> you know, they had a hobby shop there. There were some guys I knew there. Um, now it's 89. I've been in prison. I've been down like 10 years, you know. Uh I had weight piles. Uh, now we have, um, you know, I had Northerners, Southerners there. They just started letting Northerners back into that prison uh, when I was there. But uh, there was still a few stabbings once in a while, Tracy, but overall it was pretty mellow. They had a swimming pool. They had hobby. They had uh, prison industry running, you know, three shifts, like seven days a week. So it was a lot of money. And when you have a lot of money in the prison, uh that's money for guys to go to canteen, hobby, buy hobby materials, take care of their families, uh food sales, and you know, for illegal shit, you know. Guys that wanna use, they got money to do it, you know, so um it was it was a jam-packed prison. You know, it was 89. They were just starting to get into the, they had built these prisons now. They have new prisons. And the prison guards union was getting stronger under, uh, I think Pete Wilson was getting elected governor. And uh tough on crime was just full blast now. So parole used to be in California. When you went out on parole, your parole officer was just supposed to help you transition back into society, help you get work whatever, counseling, food. Well, now you have prison guards becoming parole officers and their allegiances to their union and their brother prison guards. So their job became to violate your parole and get you back into prison. And, you know, I started seeing guys parole and come back, parole and come back. You know, and Tracy was getting full. They had the field house with a couple hundred guys in it. All the day rooms had beds in them. That's so when I started noticing, you know, the prisons were filling up. I was like, fuck, man, this is, this is kind of way out, you know. Uh, you know, I can't imagine being in Tracy back in the day when it was full-blown just warfare. Because um, uh, I heard stories of guys that were there when that was going on. And, I mean, them dudes, uh, you know, the NF would, uh, you know, they'd they'd stab you, and kill you right right in the hallway, right in front of the guards, you know. Yeah, I heard the story dude uh, stabbed a dude up, killed him, and then walked over to K Wing, which is a hole, and stood in front of the door, put his hands behind his back, you know, just like so it was uh it was a <laughs> it was a blessing being there without that shit going on. Um I got in a hobby, you know, we had family visits, uh you know, the, the family visiting clerk signed signed you up for your your family visits. So, you know, I was buying family visits and doing doing my thing, you know, I was involved with some illegal activity. I was on the weight pile, uh, working in the industry. I finished my mill and cabinet trade and uh, it was cool. Tracy was pretty cool. Um, and uh, I went to board and they're like, you know, we want you to go to uh, do this program. I'm like, you know, I don't want to go do that program because it was at a CMC. And they said, well, we changed this program. Uh, it's in now in Donovan, which was in San Diego. And that's, uh, that's where I'm from. So I went down to Donovan at 93 for a category T program. I stayed there about three and a half years. Um, you know, I started working as a plumber. I did that program, and you know, I and I got into my, you know, now I'm in a prison with no no hobby shop, just sell hobbies. So I got into my painting and tattooing, and uh, you know, one of the guys I tattooed is now on death row, Todd. You know, so that's kind of a disappointing thing, you know. See, it was a young dude, pretty cool. We got out, came back, and got involved with some shit and got himself sent to death row. But, uh, you know, Donovan was pretty kickback. And, uh, you know, now I'm a little older, you know. Now I'm known as starting. Most of the guys around me are younger. Uh, and I started going to board, and uh, they're just like, nah. You know, I had a great I had great evaluations out of this program. You know, recommendation, i would be paroled. And uh, it's like, you know, uh, we're going to deny your Parole. I went to the board the last time there and there was a guy who was a San Diego, a lieutenant in San Diego police officer and police department. And uh, another guy who was a lieutenant in La Mesa police, which is San Diego. And then a, a guy who was uh, a lady who was a, a politician out of San Diego, you know, Republican. So and it's like. It's a no win situation, you know, and they knew about my case. I mean, they were cops when my case happened. You know. And uh that's when I just decided, you know, fuck this man. I I'm I'm not getting out, you know.
1: What's it like when you go to the board? Is it like a panel of people that they ask you questions?
0: Yeah, back then it was three people, you know. Now it's two. They would have two commissioners and a deputy commissioner and, and uh these two of these guys are cops. I mean, you know. And they're politically appointed. They're appointed by the governor, and so they go through your crime, you know, then your post conviction, and then you know any programs you've done, and then what your plans are for parole. And and it's it's just uh, you know basically they just sit in there and fat mouth you mm. and accuse you of stuff, and uh, you know they accuse you of you know oh you killed this guy because you wanted to be a member of a motorcycle club, and that's not true. I, I'm like that's not true um but yeah, i mean it's just it's the same thing like i was explaining to you about my trial you know they bring in a witness that lied they know he lied they don't care it's the same thing uh over the course of time in prison people drop notes on you you know they snitch on you write snitch kites that's all in your confidential file and so they'll go through that and pick and choose information they know is it's not true and but they'll make accusations and and uh It's just like, uh, or you get a letter of support from somebody. You have to get letters of support, job offers. And, uh, you know, they'll start making accusations against the people that send letters of support to you. And it's just like, man, you know, it's pretty obvious they have no intent on releasing you. And uh, I remember I told them, you know, they deny and they would deny you one year, one year, one year. Back then, it was a three-year was a max. They could deny him. I told him, hey, look, why don't you just give me a three-year denial so I don't have to come back in here for three years? And they, and they go, well, you know, just don't come. And uh, so I went uh, – I got in some trouble, you know. Uh, when I started realizing I wasn't going to get out of prison, you know, I divorced my wife. I said, hey, just go live your life. And uh, – She's like, all right, you know, and then but then she came back around and said, like, Hey, let's get a family visit. Well, I was divorced, you know, um, you know, I don't want to keep her tied to a prison sentence with me, all right. So, <clears throat> so I'm all right, I put in for a family visit and I got it, you know. Then we had another one, and on the third one, I had moved to another yard and I sent her some money off my books. And uh, my new counselor went through my file and found my divorce papers while I was on a family visit and uh <clears throat> the goon squad came out and a family visit is where you go out there with your wife your mother your children brothers sisters immediate family for 48 hours so and you're in an apartment there's food you know you, you buy food from the prison now back in the day you could bring in your own food all that stuff so anyway that last night there the goon squad came out there and rolled me up and um, you know, they, they're like, Hey, if we had our way, we would just let you stay out here. But uh, the warden called us to come roll you up, and at that time, they were talking about taking our family visits, so and that's kind of the reason why I didn't want to try to get remarried and get family visits that way. Um, so they rolled me up and uh, wrote me up for falsifying a family visiting application, <laughs> and uh. You know, I still had level four points, but I was there in a program. And so, uh, I got transferred to Corcoran from there and, uh, for that over that ride up, you know, because I, I finished the program there, but I, I got to stay there as an emergency plumber. I was a plumber. I became an emergency plumber. You can get an override also for your job, you know? And so, uh, you know, they tried to keep me there, and, and they're like, man, I don't know what the fuck you did, but that warden's intent on getting you out of here, you know. And so I went to Corcoran. I got another year of denial there. And uh, Corcoran was cool. I was there for a couple of years. Um, it's kind of run old school, you know. Like, if there was a stabbing, they would just lock down the race involved or the group involved. And resume movement, you know? And so right after I got there, they had a huge riot with the blacks and, uh, and the Southsiders. And they were locked down for like three months. The only people they would let out were whites. So we were, we had the kitchens, the tear tending, everything. It was only whites out. It was a fucking party. You know, <laughs> guys were just, you know, we were partying. Guys were making wine, getting loaded. We'd be five, six guys in the cell partying, wrestling, having a great time. And then, you know, then they let them out. They let everybody out back to normal. And uh, there would be a stabbing on the yard, man. And they would just uh, lock everybody up. Then the afternoon yard, they'd come out. You know, they ran it kind of old school. You know, back in the day, if there was a murder, they'd just lock the prison down for a second and then resume program, you know. And that's kind of how they ran Corcoran. Um, at the time, they were investigating him in the shoe for all the fights and all that stuff they were doing back there. The FBI was investigating the prison. So they treated us pretty good on the main line.
1: Um, I just had a guy fly out here who did four years in California State. And he spent some years in Corcoran. And he yeah. was telling me about the booty bandit of Corcoran. And he was telling me about the guards doing staged fights because he was a boxer. So they yeah. were putting putting money on him and all this stuff. Did did you Did you hear about all that stuff?
0: I heard about some of that stuff, but um, I, I never seen it. That like the fights, uh, that was before I got there, and that's why the feds were investigating. Them. But there were guys there that were there when that stuff was happening, and that's that stuff was happening. Um, I did hear about some guy in the hole, some black dude. They would uh, put dudes in his cell, and he would, you know, like that part's true. Like if the guards get pissed off at somebody. They'd Put him in a cell with a dude, and he'd beat him down and rape him, you know. I, yeah, uh, I
1: googled it after I spoke to that guy, and there are news articles about the booty bandit of Corcoran people can google yeah. and about yeah. the stage fights because, um, people were getting killed, weren't they? Yeah.
0: yeah, that stuff's true. And you know, there's a video I saw of a guy, you know, in the shoe, they had the chessboard spray painted on the ground, they're playing chess, and uh, the Hispanic dudes, you know, guy got mad, slapped the dude he's playing chess with. And then, like, you know, several minutes went by and they shot the dude and killed him. You know, I mean, back in the shoe, they would shoot you, you know, any violence. They would shoot you. And that shoe yards back there are really small. So, yeah, they were shooting people. They were staging fights. Uh, They would, in the shoe, they would put, like, they would release, like, you know, four or five black dudes and then release a white guy. Or, you know, no one, it's on, right? And, or they would take guys in the Chow Hall and the main line. I heard, and and, and uh, I mean, I heard this numerous accounts of this from guys that were there um, when it's going on. You know, they put guys in the Chow Hall and then, you know, to fight, and they would bet on who would win. I mean, cops would bet on it. You know, it was pretty. Uh, I and mean, these these are supposed to be the guys that are their job is to keep you in prison and keep the peace. You know, so I mean, that shit that was going on.
1: You they know, formed their own gang, was. didn't they, the guards?
0: Yeah, you know, Corcoran had uh, they were gang mentality. But the Green Wall actually came out of Salinas. It was Salinas Valley Prison. It's You know, they built so many prisons. They got so big. They had 180,000 people in prison. So now prisons kind of changed, you know. There's so many people. Uh, in the beginning, when the new prison started coming along, you had, like, guys that had been around in the 80s, 70s in each prison so things were kind of run they had locked up all the gang members but you had guys that knew how to do time but now you know once you get into the 2000s it's like your late 90s it's like all those guys that knew how to do time that they, they weren't coming back to prison you had guys that would they, they would parole stay out for three or four or five years and then come back for three or four or five years you know they would stay out and then they would They would assume that, you know, doing certain crimes was worth the risk. The benefit was worth the risk. And every now and then they get caught, come back for a few years, leave. They were criminals, you know, gangsters, whatever. Uh, A lot of them were really good dudes. And, you know, some of them guys, like they had skills. So they'd come to prison, work as carpenters, plumbers, electricians, you know, get on the inmate day labor crew. They know how to do their time. Well, those guys quit coming to prison. You know, you had the three strikes, came out, severe penalties. So they just quit coming in. And I started noticing that all the guys I knew in prison, they were gone. You know, there were very few guys left <clears throat> that that were around in, in the early 80s that, you know, when I first came in. And, and now I'm surrounded by guys that have an idea of how things were back then. But it's kind of twisted. It really wasn't the way they think it was, you know, and uh, and so they're trying to emulate what they think prison should be or what it was. And it's really it really started fucking up the system. And then, uh, you know, the three strikes started giving guys, you know, prison time, send a level four prisons that really were not that kind of guy and had life sentences for you know, stealing a pair of Levi's or shoplifting some whiskey. And, you know, I was still involved with slinging a little bit of dope and partying and, you know, I had a couple guys locked up that owed me 50 bucks. Then I started looking around the yard and guys were just checking in. What happened to so-and-so? He checked in. And guys were walking around the yard with their chest out, you know. Next thing you know, they're gone. I'm like, what happened to that dude? He owed a bunch of money, so he's gone. Or we found out that dude was a fucking chomo. Or we found, you know, I was like, "Fuck, man!" You know, by now I've been down like fifteen, sixteen years. So the guy that I was doing shit with, uh, he got busted. Actually, I remember he sold this guy some dope. This kid had a lot of money. His dad, dad, you know, big daddy, big money, three striker bought a bunch of speed and uh he went to sell me papered up a bunch of speed and he wrote names on each paper he was going to give a bunch bunch of guys a paper dope you know and they rolled up on him in the chow hall and they thought he was stealing sugar you know then the cop put his hand in his jacket pocket and what he got in there and he pulled out all these papers of dope with everybody's name on it and they sent him to the hole and uh the guy I was doing shit with, he had a uh, life without the possibility of parole, and he was just a hardcore dope fiend, and he was a wheeler dealer, and we were doing things together. So we were locked down. We come out for a shower, and he goes, yeah, that dude sent me a kite. He said, don't worry, I'm not going to tell on you. And I said, uh, he's already told on you, Ricky. He goes, how do you know? I said, well, if I get busted and I go to the hole, um you know, I don't have to send you a kite and tell you, I'm not going to tell on you. You'll know I didn't tell on you because you won't get busted. They're not going to come fuck with you. He goes, wow. And sure enough, you know, I started searching his cell and they ended up taking him to the hole. And, uh, this is 97, you know, and so I said, you know, all my friends are gone. And for us, part a uh, dope was for partying and making money. I remember them guys told me, you know, if you're not making money and you're not having a good time and you're still fucking with it, then you're just a dope fiend like all the rest of these guys. I thought, you know, I'm not really having that much fun. I got to put guys in check. Uh, you know, guys owe you money. It was funny. is like the, the, the Southsiders, other guys, they would pay you. And then white dudes are like slow fuck you. And I got to go to work and say, hey, you know, if you don't pay me, I'm going to kill you. Why do I got to do that? You know, so I just said I'm not having any fun. The money's too risky. I'm done. You know, and uh, I went to my cell. I flushed a quarter ounce of crank. I said, I'm over it. You know, I remember my cell. He goes, "Man, I would have done that." I said, "Not in this cell. I'm over it." You know, <laughs> and uh, and then became the the you know you could go to the yard and guys would be talking about dope and I'd be like, "Yeah, I don't use." Huh? You know, guy and everybody uses dope in prison. You know, son of a bitch.
1: My battery's just gone. Just keep, keep talking though. I'll just go replace it. All
0: right. Uh, yeah. So everybody uses dope in prison. You're surrounded by dope feeds, you know, but, uh, yeah, I did like Corcoran. It was, it was, I enjoyed Corcoran. Uh, I remember one time, uh, my wife came to see me there and, uh, yeah, there was a lot of stabbings there, and nobody ever got busted. I remember that. That's the last place I've been to where violence would happen and guys wouldn't get caught. And uh, so, when you go to the visiting room, you're down. You go down to a corner. You hit a button. It, it buzzes over and vision, and then they pop the gate, and you could go out to your visit. You know. So I get down there with it. Some of the Southsiders had a little policy, pick up a Bible or a knife. So if a guy was involved with the church, they wouldn't really sweat him for you know, to be involved with the, the, the madness, you know, but this one guy was like bullying this old man. And he was walking around with a Bible during the day and then bully weaker guys. And so I remember I was down there, I pushed the button, you know, to go on my business. I turned around and there's this dude stabbing this guy. I mean, right in front of the fucking program office. He just on it, just boom, boom, boom. He stabbed him like 25 times. And I remember I was fuck, you know, Mm -hmm. I kept pushing that button, you know, for him to pop that gate so I could get out to my visit. And and I I got through the gate and I got to my visit and I heard the alarm on the yard. My lady's like, what's that? And I go, (laughs) I told her, she's like, fuck, you know. But I mean, that's the mentality you develop after a while. I mean, there's a guy getting stabbed, um, you know, and you're just like, I want to go on my visit. You know, fucking, you know what I mean? <laughs>
1: uh, and
0: there was a kid there too, Opie. He was in New Folsom with me. And and uh, it was always fucking on the verge of getting in a wreck, you know, over drugs. And I was a tear tender at the time. So I would do my job in the building and then go out to the yard. It's a new prison. They got a double gauge, you know, go through the rotunda. You go out, they open the gate on both gates and opie was coming in and he had a knife sticking out his neck he's like this knife was sticking out about that far out of his neck and i go uh i go what's up opie and he goes they stabbed me in my neck i was like fuck you know but uh you know so i go well fuck it i went out to the yard i figure "Oh, we're gonna be locked down for a little bit on that so I just jetted out the yard, found a grassy spot and sat down.
1: And,
0: you know, the alarm went off and I got a, you know, hour and a half, two hours a yard.
1: <laughs>
0: I mean, that's, that was Corcoran, you know, I, I mean, it was, and you know, the guys like that guys who were getting stabbed uh, was usually because they owed a lot of money and they weren't paying, Um, which I didn't mind, you know. Uh, um, And then, you know, I was like, you know, Corcoran didn't have any AA or NA. Uh, No hobby. I worked in the furniture, uh, like a modular office furniture, in a wood shop for a while. It was pretty cool. Um, But I wanted a hobby. I wanted to get into my art and shit, you know. So I got transferred to
1: Lancaster. Mitch, I think I'm going to stop you here because we're out about two hours of content right now. Yeah, Uh, and I think we're halfway through your sentence. Yeah. What what I'm going to suggest is we put this out as part one. I'll get Bruno back next Sunday, Yeah. and we can just keep going from there over part two if you're up for that.
0: Yeah, we can do that. Uh, yeah.
1: Do you want um, to tell the viewers then how they can find your channel? We'll you know we'll include the link in the description box below this video. Can you tell them how they can find your channel and support you and go to your Instagram and stuff?
0: Oh uh, yeah. Yeah, guys can find my channel at uh, Heart Intentions on YouTube. Uh, and we also have a website, uh, com. And uh, I'm on Instagram, Mitch uh, Smiley 790 on Instagram. People want to message, you know, I, I still do artwork and, and the like, you know. Yeah. So be cool to hear from people, get their response. And if anybody wants any, you know, artwork done, I can do that. Yeah.
1: So all of Mitch's links will be in the description box below this video. We're on an epic journey here of almost four decades in prison. You're a brilliant storyteller, Mitch, because I've hardly had to say anything, and that's ideal for me. I just sit here and listen to these stories around the edge of our seats. It's such an epic journey. So please put in the comments what you thought about this. Like I said, all of Mitch's links are there. If you want to reach out to him, check out his art, subscribe to his channel. You know, we really appreciate people following through on the links that the guests give us, it incentivizes them to come back and it's just, you know, helps build this community. So let us know in the comments what you thought about this video and huge thank you to Mitch for spending so much time with us. Really appreciate it, man. Thanks for having us. Cheers. Appreciate it. So if you enjoy true crime books, Godfly Press is proud to announce the publication of Son of the Cali Cartel. You may have seen the Cali Cartel as represented on Narcos. A lot of that was BS. William lays it down in this book, what actually happened. The Cali cartel, they took over from Pablo Escobar. They were the biggest cartel in the world, dealing billions and billions per year, US dollars. And the four heads out of the two most important ones were Miguel, which was William's dad, and his brother, Gilberto. When Miguel went to prison and Gilberto went to prison, William was running the cartel. Could you imagine running a multi-billion dollar cartel and the DEA, war on drugs, they made them public enemy number one. William got shot up in an assassination attempt in a restaurant. The book starts out with that story. His mates got murdered and he just barely made it out alive. So if you want to check it out, it's available worldwide on Amazon as an e-book, audio book and paperback. And the link is in the description box below this video. Cheers. Enjoy the podcast.